In the Spirit, the one who sat on the throne carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. When we come to these books of prophecy in the Bible, churches fall into two big groups. There are churches who believe that God inspired prophets to give specific details about names, dates, places, rulers, countries, happenings. And there are others who believe that the books of prophecy are general guidelines if people do not trust God, if people violate the Ten Commandments, if they continue to murder, to lie, to steal, to covet that which belongs to a neighbor, things will get worse and worse. If people do trust the love of God, if they put themselves out for the well-being of another, then God's kingdom on earth will more and more resemble God's kingdom in heaven. So Dr. Eugene Boring, who held a distinguished chair in New Testament studies at Bright Divinity School, TCU in Fort Worth, until his retirement has written of Revelation. The book of Revelation has some important things to say to today's church, but it has no predictions about today's church. Four things today. Number one, John says, the one who sat on the throne in the Spirit took me up to a high mountain, and I saw a new Jerusalem coming down from God. We believe John wrote the Revelation in the year 95 or 96. In that first new century of the Common Era. If that be the case, then Jerusalem and the Temple have both been destroyed again. In the year 70 of that first century of this new common era, the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem, once again ravaged the temple, taking all gold, silver, bronze, everything of value, and setting fire to it. And of course there has been no Jewish temple on the top of Mount Moriah since the year 70. There are two mosques there. There is no, no Jewish temple, there is no Christian church on the holy mountain. So John has turned to the Bible he knew, the Hebrew scriptures, 
And he has found a prophet who wrote into a similar circumstance, Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a young priest, the son of a priest, the grandson of a priest, all of his ancestry coming from the tribe of Levi. He saw the dreaded Babylonians come in 587. He saw them ransack Solomon's temple that had stood on the top of Mount Moriah for 400 years, took all the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, and set fire to it, went through Solomon's magnificent palace that had stood for 400 years, took all gold, all silver, all bronze, and set fire to it as well, burned the gates of the city so that it was vulnerable to anybody and any, anyone who came. And Ezekiel, along with thousands of his fellow Jews were force marched all the way to Babylon. The last vision he had of the holy city, it was in flames. And so when Ezekiel wrote, he wrote, I saw a new Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem coming down from God. Jerusalem's been destroyed again. The temple destroyed again. Never has it been rebuilt. And John envisions a new Jerusalem. But it comes down to the earth. A new city, a new beginning. That's what he envisions. A couple of weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal had a preview of a program that was going to be shown on PBS. And it said, PBS sometimes does what it does best of all. Be sure to watch this program called The Music Instinct. And so I was sure to watch it the night it was aired. It was wonderful. Everyone from Yo-Yo Ma to some of today's leading scientists were trying to figure out why music plays such an important role in the life of Homo sapiens? Why is it so important to us? Uh, music differs from country to country. When we hear music south of the Rio Grande River, it sounds different from the music we normally hear north of the Rio Grande. If one goes to France, to England, particularly to Asia, to India, to China, to Japan, the music sounds different. And yet, all over the planet, there is an octave of eight notes and people recognize. Uh, we know people have been producing music a long time. Up in Germany, where Gail and I were in May, they have unearthed flutes, flutes that are 35,000 years old that date back into the Ice Age. We've been making music a long time. Some studies have shown that little preemies, babies born prematurely that have to sometimes spend two, three months in the hospital, their heartbeats are steadied sometimes by certain kinds of music being played into the nursery. Scientists have discovered that sometimes cardiac patients can have their heart rhythms sort of maneuvered a little bit, restored by hearing certain kinds of music. Is it because we've heard it since we were infants that music is so important to us? Scientists say no. In fact, there's something now built into Homo sapien that, that music triggers in all of us. One group of scientists went to West Cameroon where there are tribes people who had never heard Western music. And they asked them if they would be willing to listen to some music that came from the Western world soundtracks from some well-known movies and they agreed they would be willing to do that and so they got these tribes people together and they began to play the music and though they had never heard it again and were not seeing the movie they registered when music was happy they heard 
happy. When the music was sad, they heard sad. When the music was scary, they heard scary. And the scientists concluded on that program that music helped build community. When ancient folk gathered around campfires at night, music helped build community. All 66 books of the Bible are about how God wants to build meaningful, responsible community on the earth. Number two, Ezekiel was a priest. So when he saw the new Jerusalem, he saw a new temple. And he saw a great wall separating that temple from common folk who were ritually unclean, impure. John said, it literally says in Greek, no temple I saw. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, they are the temple. And there is no wall separating the people from the temple, which is God Almighty and the Lamb, His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Nothing. And if I'd read a few more verses with you, it goes on to say, And they will see God's face. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Mark Shagizen has a new book out called The Vision Revolution. He puts the letter R in a different color on the cover of his book because it's also about the vision evolution. How has vision in Homo sapien developed as it does today? Why do we have two eyes looking forward rather than one on either side of our head like a horse? Why do both of our eyes look forward? And why do we have two of them instead of one bigger one? Scientists study these kinds of things, ask these kinds of questions, and they believe it's about survival. I mean, through centuries and centuries, some survived and many did not. Some survived long enough to procreate and some did not. And one of the conclusions is that we have two eyes Close enough, but not too close, so that we can have three-dimension vision. So we can see in three dimension. It's important for you to be able to tell how far you are from one who may hurt you, whether that's another human or whether that's an animal. So having two eyes on the same side of the head gives you depth perception. This book also says, uh, hold one of your fingers up close to your eye and then close the other one and get the finger closer and closer and when it's almost touching you, it almost blocks out all vision. But if you open the other eye, the finger almost disappears. It almost disappears. This eye can see around and forward. Huh? So those who can run through a forest and see around, around, around twigs and branches and clubs and sticks probably survives longer. Another big question has been, why does Homo sapiens seem to see greater variety of color than any other of the primates? Scholars thought for a while maybe it's because we need to see ripened fruit. That is, if we're going to keep living, we've got to eat and 
humans probably began in the great jungles. So finding ripe fruit, if we could see purple, if we could see red, if we could see golden yellow, then we could eat and survive. But this Dr. Shigizi says, no, I think it's about survival again. I think those lived longer and procreated more who could distinguish color better in the face of the one nearest you. It's the old fight and flight again. People's facial colors change when they change emotions, and those who could read those changes better survive longer. What will you see when you look into the face of God? Anger or compassion? Mercy? Grace? Number three. Six times in the Revelation, John mentions the book. The book. Whose name is in the book? The old summertime revivals were about leading people to make decisions. Make decisions. There's a new book out, The Collected Letters of Henry James. You're familiar with Henry James, his older brother William. William was already teaching at Harvard, was on the faculty there when Henry made his first trip to Europe. I remember our first trip. Gail and I went to a travel agency here in Tulsa and said, we've never been to Europe. We would love to go to Europe. How much money do you have, would we ask? And we told them what we thought we could spend. Well, here's a catalog. Pick out the one, the trip you want to make. And so we signed up for seven countries in 14 days. 1982, we did seven countries in 14 days. When I read through this article about Henry James' letters, it said he went to the same seven countries we went to, but it took him seven months. Because he was riding in what we would call a stagecoach. He was riding in a horse-drawn carriage with his aunt and his older sister. Henry was 29. He wrote letters every day. This was 1872. Seven years after the end of the great war between the states and this country. He was in Europe with an aunt and a sister. And they were going through seven countries by horse-drawn carriage. He describes things that are still there. St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Westminster Abbey. Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. The Vatican. He saw the same statues and paintings that you can see today. Botticelli. Michelangelo. But never once does he mention praying in any of those great churches. He was a preacher's kid. His father was a minister. And Henry made fun of people of faith in his letters. Christmas, he said, just another day. It's clear to see that civilization is leaving Christianity behind. That's what he wrote. Well, Henry's come and gone, and the church is still here. It is still here, inviting people to come, come, come to him, who will save you, who will help you have faith in Almighty God and help you to do agape, to put yourself out for the well-being of another. Number four, this letter this revelation from John in a small little cave on the Isle of Patmos. 
is always encouraging. People who read this book and end up frightened to death have not heard this book. This is a very encouraging book. This city, he imagines, is huge. He says it's 12,000 furlongs by 12,000 furlongs by 12,000 furlongs. That's about 1,500 miles. He's just 60 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey in a part of the world where distances are so small. I mean, it's only 50 miles from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River. He envisioned a city 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high. And the gates never closed. Never closed. Bidding the nations to come. Come. Come and see. In May, Gail and I went to five concentration camps in Germany. One of them was Flossenburg. Flossenburg is difficult to get to. It's outside a small town. We had to take a bus after riding three different trains to get there. We wanted to stand where Dietrich Bonhoeffer died. Great young Christian theologian, just 39 years old. Two weeks before the Allied forces arrived at Flossenburg, he was taken out one cold April morning, all of his clothes stripped off of him to further humiliate him, and then he was hanged. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer had written, and he remembered going to the Berlin train station when he was 11. He was 11 years old. His older brother Walter was 18, and he had been notified that he had been drafted into the German army in World War I. They had sisters in between the two of them, so early that morning their mother took them all to the train station to see Walter off. And he said, Walter hugged me, his little brother, eleven. He hugged my two sisters, and then he hugged my mother. And when he hugged her, she whispered to him, but I heard her say, Walter, only miles can ever separate you and me. Only miles. And Dietrich wrote from Flossenburg, Mother, I remember only miles can separate you and me. And one day, God takes away the miles. <laughs>